BS Spiritual Book Club's live video series and joining me today to share the stories behind the 10 books which influenced him the most on his life journey is transformational teacher and speaker, founding member of the Transformational Leadership Council and human consciousness explorer, Chris Atwood. Just a little bit about Chris, he's a leading figure in the transformational world and a master of creating enlightened alliances. He's the co-author of two New York Times bestselling books, The Passion Test, The Effortless Path to Discovering Your Destiny and Your Hidden Riches. And with his business partner and ex-wife, Janet Bray Atwood, he built a global brand with over 4,000 Passion Test facilitators in more than 65 countries. I love that, people helping others discover their passion. So after a successful career in the business world as the CEO or senior executive of more than a dozen companies, Chris took 10 years off for his own inner development, spending eight to 10 hours a day in meditation and making an extensive study of the Vedic literature of India and the functioning of human consciousness. Chris Atwood, welcome. It's good to have you with us. Thank you so much, Sandy. It's, it's a pleasure and a delight to be back with you. It's been a while. It has indeed. And it's good considering that you've helped hundreds of thousands around the world discover their destiny, that today we're going to hear a little bit about the books that played a key role in moving you along the path to discovering yours. So um, tell us, first of all, what do books mean to you? Hmm. Well, that's a great question. I, I think I'd say that books are a way of sharing uh, insights, knowledge, stories. Uh, throughout history, stories have been the way that we've taught each generation from one generation to the next to the next. And, and there's that saying, of course, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. Well, how do we stand on the shoulders of giants? By learning from the people who've come before. So I think books are a way of recording the insights, the knowledge, the understandings that people have had and so that many, many other people can benefit from that and, and use those to, to expand their own journey. Mm, yeah. I mean, can you imagine a world without books? I certainly can't. We'd come up with some way of communicating stories, you know. I'm I mean, sure would, think yeah. about it. For thousands of years before the printing press was developed, uh, you know, people memorized the stories. The, the, the whole Vedic literature actually was passed down from family to family through an oral tradition for thousands, for several thousand years. And so they couldn't write it, but they repeated it. And that's why they, they created the, that literature in verses, you know, um, so that they were easy to remember. Yeah. There's a cadence, a rhythm to them. And so it was easy to remember them and they could be be sustained in their original form for many, many generations. Mm, well, it's a good job that we do have books now because I think people's, you know, uh, attention span these days, <laughs> they couldn't hold it in their memory. That's right. We can't remember that long to yeah. be able to, to pass it on. Yeah. yeah. And uh, your first book, very old book, um, this is only the second time this has come up in uh, God knows about 60 different uh, contributions we've had by now. That's the Bible. Uh, yes. Mm. Yeah, well, my father was a Lutheran minister. And so I grew up going to Sunday school every, every week and, and reading the Bible was uh, a part of my upbringing, part of my, 
my growth. And you asked, Sandy, I think, as I recall, you asked, what were the books, the spiritual books that had the biggest impact on you? And I, I, I couldn't leave out the Bible because in my early years, that was the only spiritual book I was really exposed to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting because one of the things that you said was the interpretation of the Bible, I was taught, seemed to suggest that humans live for as long as they live and then they're judged for all eternity. That made no sense to me and yes. opened me up to other ways of viewing spiritual life. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. I, I, somehow I couldn't get the idea that, you know, I, you come on, on this earth for a flicker a moment of time you know even mm -hmm. if you happen to live for 80 or 90 or 100 years it's still in the context of eternity it's like just boom and it's gone and to think that that your entire existence for for the rest of eternity is determined by that little brief uh, sojourn mm -hmm. on this planet just uh, it somehow didn't jive yeah. with me no no it's just not logical is it no <laughs> So book number two, uh, this one comes up again and again and again. Autobiography of a Yogi, Paramahansa right. Yogananda. Uh, yeah. What a wonderful book. What a wonderful man. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, they, I was introduced to that book when I was in college. And um, I think I, I, I may have learned Transcendental Meditation by this time. And it might have been in the beginning. I can't quite remember. But, but I remember reading this book. And it was the first time I had read any book where the author talked about kind of spiritual experiences, out-of-body experiences, experiences that seemed magical and, and amazing to me at the time. And it kind of broke some boundaries of thinking in my mind, which I was really grateful for because it, it opened me up to a whole new way of looking at life and reality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so many people said, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't work out if those experiences were true or not, but you know the the very contemplation that they might be true in itself is yeah. pretty mind blowing. Well, and he said they were true, and I yeah. was willing to take them. It was his experience. I was willing yeah. to take him at his word. They were true for him at the very least, and that in itself was mind blowing for me. Mm. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Me too. And it's interesting, there's a theme to your books. We can see where your <laughs> interests were taking you. Because the third book is The Science of Being and Art of Living by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Yeah, that was, that was a great book because I was in, I think I was in the third year of college. I had learned TM a couple of years before. And a good friend of mine, was working at Maharshi International University, which at the time was located in a big, huge apartment building. They'd taken over this whole apartment building in Isla Vista, right next to UC Santa Barbara. And Isla Vista was the community where I lived. And, and, uh, and of course, I was going to UC Santa Barbara at the time. And, and over the summer months, I didn't have anything to do. And my friend said, well, why don't you come work with me? I'm, I'm helping to find sites for academies. And and things for the TM organization. So I said, okay, fine, sounded good to me. And I went and, and did the work, did what I was asked to do. And, and it turned out right around that time, my friend and his colleague who were working together uh, ended up in Iowa 
and negotiated on the purchase of a college called Parsons College. It was a liberal arts college that had been uh, a rep it had a reputation for catering to rich uh, party kids, you know, kids that weren't really serious about school but liked to have fun, and they, their parents wanted them to get a college degree. And Parsons had had kind of gone bust uh, around. This was the late 60s, I think. And it, I think by this time it had been lying dormant for five, six, seven, eight years, something like that. And so the TM organization ended up buying the, the, the campus. And I remember my interaction with it was the president of the university, Dr. Keith Wallace, who was one of the early researchers on the physiological effects of TM. Remember he called a meeting and the only place in this apartment building where the university was located at the time that everyone could meet together was the dining hall. So we were all called down to the dining hall and, and he made the announcement that the, this university campus has been purchased in Fairfield, Iowa. And in a week, we're all gonna pack up our things and fly to Iowa. Now, that didn't apply to me, of course, cause I was going to UC Santa Barbara and I thought, oh my goodness, I'm gonna be left behind. And, and during, while I was working with my friend in this, uh, what was called the Academy's office, he had recommended this book, The Science of Being and Art of Living by Maharshi Mahashyogi. And, and I remember when I started reading it, it was like, I think I said this in my description, it was like a, a, a thirsty man brought to water, you know, it's like I had been mm -hmm. in the desert for years and, and suddenly this book just provided so much nourishment to me. I, it's really surprising because I read it now and I think, wow, it's really a great book. It's really fabulous. The knowledge is amazing and wonderful, but it doesn't have the same effect it did then. For some reason at that moment, it hit me in a way that I couldn't put it down. And and so when, when everyone was leaving now to go uh, back to, to Iowa, my friend, I said, what, what am I going to do? I, you know, I earned these 10 days of course credits, it was called, from the work that I did. And I said, well, what can I do with that? He said, well, why don't you take Marshi's course called the, uh, the Science of Creative Intelligence. It's being offered in Northern California. So that's what I did. I, I applied for that course. It was a one month long course. It was an amazing course, really powerful in residence program for a month. And that led me ultimately later to become a TM teacher and so forth. But I remember asking my friend, well, what's the science of creative intelligence? What's that's about? And he said, well, it's all the knowledge in that book you've been reading that you love so much. And, and so that was enough to get me on the course. Hmm. It's interesting because uh, the book cropped up a few weeks ago when Robert O. Williams, I think, was on. He actually attended the school. Uh -huh. um, and he met the Beach Boys there because they uh, yeah. decided they wanted to promote the Maharishi's work and they decided right. to record an album there. Uh -huh. So, um, you know, it's interesting that suddenly this is coming up again and again. Yeah. Um, well, you know, Mike Love of the Beach Boys ha he had, maybe he still has, I don't know, but he had a, a beautiful estate uh, in, in between yes. Santa Barbara Santa and the Barbara, university yeah. campus. And, yeah. and they had a recording studio there and all of that yeah. stuff. So. Yeah, that's where Robert also ended up after ah, he left ah, the school yeah. there. He met cool. Mike and ended up um, working there and had a number of near-death experiences while he was there as well. Indeed. Yeah. So book number five, Love and God by Michael Yeah, Rishi. yeah. So, so once, you know, once I had gotten into the kind of, 
what do you say, the, the environment of, of Maharshi's knowledge. And, you know, when Maharshi came to the United States, he began teaching TM to people. He, he began lecturing. And then people wanted to know, well, what do I do to experience this wonderful state of pure consciousness, pure awareness that you're talking about? And so he taught them transcendental meditation. And, the, and I remember him saying at the time, I mean, I don't remember, but I remember reading about him saying at the time that, uh, that he had to make a decision. Uh, was he going to first teach people the technique to have the experience of pure consciousness, or should he first educate them about what it is and why it's valuable and then teach them the technique? And he decided that actually it was more important to have the experience than to have the intellectual understanding. Yeah. And, and so he began teaching TM. And interestingly enough, you know, I mean, I know uh, the, the TM organization now charges, I don't know, $900 or $1,000 to learn TM. And some people think, oh, that's a lot of money and so on. But I remember Marshy taught for free the first, the first time he went around the world. And he taught thousands of people to meditate. And then he came back around the second time to the same places. And he found that there were only a handful of people out of, maybe he taught a thousand people in one location. Maybe there were only 15 or 20 or, or 40 or 50 who actually still were meditating. And, and he didn't understand it, you know? And, and so he asked the people who were there around him at the time and people said, well, in this society, if people don't pay for something, they don't value it. And so that's when he, he started charging to learn meditation, to learn TM. And, and it worked, you know, I mean, he, he continued to teach thousands of people. And the third time he went around the world, something like 75, 80% of the people that he taught were still meditating, you know, so uh, we just, it's an interesting little thing, but love and God came up because as I became interested in Maharshi and his work and his knowledge, this was, uh, these are two poems that he wrote in the sixties, early in the early days he first started teaching in 1958, and sometime in the early 60s, he wrote Love and God. And they're just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful poems. Uh, I, at my wedding, my, uh, uh, we read, uh, you know, a portion of them. It's, they're, they're, they're amazing. I, I don't know what more to say. I think, I, didn't I include a little excerpt of, uh, one of, of one of the poems. You did, and you did. And if would you, you mind reading, reading I've got that? it right in front of me, yeah. Love is the sweet expression of life. It is the supreme content of life. Love is the force of life, powerful and sublime. The flower of life blooms in love and radiates love all around it. Life expresses itself through love. The stream of life is a wave on the ocean of love and life is expressed in the waves of love, and the ocean of love flows in the waves of life. What a comfort love brings to the heart. That's a beautiful thing to, to read at a wedding. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's just a tiny portion. I mean, the, the poem goes on and on and on and on, you know, it's, but, but you get a little taste of it. Uh, for me, it was so inspiring, the, these poems, really inspiring. I think I read them when I was taking the Science of Creative Intelligence course when I went up uh, to Northern California. So before you studied uh, his books, I mean, were you on one trajectory and did you find that 
trajectory changing as you read more of his work? Well, you know, so I, I was 17 when I started college, when I went to UC Santa Barbara. The only kind of spiritual discipline that I had known or spiritual life I had known was from my father, who was a minister, you know. And so I joined the Lutheran Student Association at UC Santa Barbara. And the first year I was there, I was active and involved in, in the work that they were doing. Um, when, but the first year that I was in college, so this is a long time ago, in 1970, it was a time when the Vietnam War was going on. There were student protests all over the country. And William Kunstler, who was the attorney, the lawyer for the Chicago Seven, and there's this great, I don't know if you've seen it, Sandy, but there, I think Netflix or somewhere, they have this great movie on the Chicago Seven. Really, mm. I love yeah. it. But uh, William Kunstler came and spoke. And, and interestingly enough, at UC Santa Barbara, there wasn't enough interest in football to maintain the program, so they had discontinued it. But the, the, they had built a football stadium because you know every American college has a football stadium. And the whole stadium was filled. There were over 10,000, there were only 13,000 people at the school and like, there were like 10,000 people at this lecture. And he got everyone fired up just with, with the, the uh, what unfairness of what was going on and, and in Chicago and around the world and the Vietnam War and all of that. And then, so we're all emotional and, and really thinking, gosh, what can we do here? And we come walking out of the stadium and there are these big fields. They had these um, intramural fields where people played football and soccer and so forth. And so we had a view of the roads that came into Isla Vista. There was really only one road that came into Isla Vista. And I remember counting 17 police cars that coming into the to this little town, it's a little half square mile area, and ten thousand students basically primarily living in this area, and and it felt like we were being invaded, right? And and so the over the next few days, the 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 thing escalated, and some people at one point on the second day, some people took a big battering ram and there was a Bank of America in the center of the town surrounded by empty fields and parking lots. So it was all by itself. And the Bank of America was seen as a, an instrument of imperial, uh, American imperialist capitalism to use that language of the time. And, uh, and so they broke down the doors to the bank, set the bank on fire. And so this bank is on fire and and the police had gotten some word that there was someone who was trapped inside, which wasn't true. But so they had a busload of police that came in to town, parked on the far side of the field, and then marched across the field in full riot gear with helmets and shields and batons and all their their vests and everything. And and they line up in front of this crowd of young people, probably three thousand people there on the street and. It was a very emotional time, as you can imagine. And so the, the kids are yelling epithets at the police and the police are looking, some are looking scared, some are looking angry. Uh, they're all not much older than the kids in the crowd, right? Most of them, some of them were older. And then the captain somehow felt threatened in some way. And so he told the police to charge the crowd. So they, they charged the crowd and pushed them back and beat them up. and. And, and, uh, and then they went back to their line and, 
And the, meanwhile, they're sending someone into the bank to see who was who was stuck there. They did that three times. After the third time, the crowd just got angrier and angrier. They're throwing rocks. They're throwing bottles. You know, the, they're they're just really angry. Finally, when the, after the third time, and there's kids now on the on the ground with their heads bloodied and all of that, the the crowd just rushes at the police. And there's only 50 of these guys, you know, the poor guys, can you imagine 3000 angry mob coming straight at you? Well, they turned around and ran as fast as they could back to their bus. And the, um, and that, why was I telling you that story? That, that was kind of, that shifted my perspective on life. You asked, uh, you know, did get, you know, how did, was I on a trajectory? And I was on a trajectory at that point in the face of that riot. And then there were three, there were two more riots in Isla Vista that year. And out of that came a community development effort that was aiming to address some of the issues that had come up during the riots because the, the, the demonstrations and the riots were partially aimed at the Vietnam War and what was going on nationally in the US, but they were partially aimed at the local landlords and the kind of tenement conditions that, uh, that were existing in the student community. It was called a student ghetto. And, and so a, uh, on a volunteer basis, the community put together this elected body called the Isla Vista Community Council and organized, some, some of the people got together, organized an election, they elected these people. They had no legal authority, you know, they, it was just, we need some representation to talk to the county and the state and the university and all of that. And so there were 10, 12 people who got elected. One of them was my girlfriend and uh, at the time. And, and I applied for and was hired as the planning director for Isla Vista. And so the trajectory that I was on, Sandy, was how do we change society? How do we save the world, basically? That was my trajectory, is how do we change the way things are being done so that we live in a more compassionate, more loving society, a society that can work for everyone? Because it's clear that the current society doesn't. And so as, as planning director, my whole aim and goal and, and our whole group there at the time was let's create examples of different ways of doing things that can, that can then be copied throughout the country and throughout the world in different ways. So it's a very high-minded, visionary sort of goal. But when I was hired as the planning director, uh, there had been one before me, and he had been very high profile, very successful. And now there were a lot of eyes on me. There were a lot of people, not just from the local community, but from the university, from the state, from the county. Uh, I, I was 20 years old. I had more responsibility than I'd ever had in my life. I had a $300,000 budget, which in today's dollars is like $5 million or something. And, and we had to figure out what to do to redesign this community and make it work. And I was under so much stress. My, my skin was flaking off my, my face. I had acid indigestion constantly, nonstop. And, and I, I could barely function. And one of my friends had been practicing TM for some time. And he said, Chris, you should try transcendental meditation. It's a great way of relieving stress. And I thought, well, I'll try anything at this point, you know? And so I went to the lecture and I heard what they had to say. It sounded okay to me. I paid my $35 at the time. 
And, uh, and then I learned, and I, from the first time I sat down, I noticed that something different was happening. I closed my eyes and I went to a place I had never gone before, you know, just following the instructions that I was given. And that was enough to keep me meditating. Uh, the, in the first week, the flaking went away on my skin, the acid indigestion went away. I started to feel calm. I started being able to make good decisions and, and be functional and to actually do something good in this job. And, and so all of those things combined kept me meditating regularly month after month because you know, it was dramatic in the beginning, but after a while, you kind of get used to this new way of being, you know, and it's no longer so dramatic. But I remember a year later, I had to prepare the grant proposal for our funding for the next year. And I went through and as I was going through and listing all of our achievements and accomplishments of the last year, most of which had been initiated by me with help from others, of course, I got to the third page. And and there were some significant things. I mean, we had taken empty lots and turned them into parks. We had we had got, gone down to the County Board of Supervisors and gotten the entire community rezoned so that it couldn't be, the population wouldn't be so dense. We had, um, we had done just, we had, we had built barrier parks so that cars wouldn't drive across town. They'd go out and around and, and bicycles would have priority. We had, we had put in what are called curb bulbs. We put in plantings and landscaping and just tons of stuff. And I looked at this and I went, there's no way I could have done any of this if I wasn't meditating. I mean, when I started meditating, I was practically catatonic from all the stress. And, and I thought, wow, this is significant. And so that sort of got me on the path of looking more deeply into what Maharshi was teaching, what TM was all about, and then working at MIU and, and so on and so forth. That was kind of the trajectory I was on. And it sort of continued, but just with a different focus. Mm. So I've been talking a lot, but there's one other story I'd love to tell, Sandy, if, if there's time. Go ahead. Uh, so after I was planning director, I went back to school and one of my school projects, my girlfriend and I decided that we would start a food co-op in Isla Vista. And, and we got a thousand people to pay $10 each as a deposit. And that was enough money to, to get all the equipment we needed and to rent a space. And we started this food co-op. And, and I wrote the vision for the co-op. I remember that. And I, I don't remember exactly what it said, but it was really about how we wanted to change the way people viewed food and how it got onto their table and put them more in touch with the process so that they would be respectful and understanding of what it took to be able to create the food that they ate. And the idea was that every member of the co-op would do donate an hour a month to, to help in the store. Not so much to do the work because we still had staff, but, but so that they would be more aware of what was going on. And, and what needed to be done in order to sustain the co-op. And that was going really great. I mean, it was very successful. There were lots of people using the co-op. We had a good membership. And then one day I was sitting in the back of this long, we had this long skinny store and there was a little office in the back and it was nighttime, it was dark. Uh, the only light in the whole place was my little light as I was doing the books for the, for the co-op. I, I remember going through and discovering that our volunteer cashiers had stolen money from the cash register. Now, that may not seem like a big surprise. I mean, grocery stores all the time, they, their cashiers probably pocket money here and there. And 
it, it, you go, oh, well, what can we do so that that doesn't happen again? Well, for me, it wasn't like that. This was like, oh, my God, these people are the members of the co-op, and yet they're stealing from their own pockets. You know, they're taking money out of their own pockets, which was the whole idea was that when people became more aware, more conscious of these things, that they wouldn't do that kind of thing, right? And so my whole vision of change, how change would happen, that if we change the way institutions worked, then we could change the society uh, that those institutions were a part of, it all came tumbling down. And it was really at that point, the reason I wanted to tell the story is because that was the point in my life where I realized that it doesn't do any good to change things on the outside if the inside doesn't change. And I know you know this, Sandy, of course. But, um, and so that really put me on the path of, well, what do I need to do in order to change my inside? And how can I help others change theirs? And so I eventually became a teacher of TM and so on and so forth. But that, it was, that was the turning point for me is realizing that, that changing institutions, changing the way you do things in and of itself doesn't change people's behavior if they're, if they're internal, uh, system, their internal system of beliefs and so forth doesn't change. Yeah. And you went on to become CEO of several companies. I mean, did you take all of those philosophies into those companies with you? And, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, and one right around that time, I wasn't CEO of a company, but as a result of the work I'd done as planning director, uh, the, the board of super, the member of the board of supervisors from our area appointed me to the five member board of board of directors of the Santa Barbara Metropolitan Transit District. This is the organization that ran all the buses for the whole county of Santa Barbara, right? And I remember I was 22 or 23 years old at the time. And I remember walking in barefooted with my long hair and, and, uh, and I was the youngest one. The, the, the next youngest person on that board was 55 years old. And they all kind of looked at me and went, and then they wouldn't talk to me. They, they looked away, you know, so, so the next week I said, well, this isn't worth it. I didn't cut my hair, but I did, I did put on a sport coat and a nice uh, uh, shirt and tie. And I went in with shoes on this time and they went, oh, wow, you look so great, Chris. And now I was part of the club, even though I was still so young, I was part of the club. And as a result of that, then um, we were able to, we were the first, second county in California to put trailers on the back of buses so that the people could put their bikes on the trailer and ride from the university down to Santa Barbara. I, I ran a whole campaign that, that got um, the students were able to pay a few dollars each quarter and be able to ride the buses without any additional charge. And I became a hero there. And that wasn't so much about applying the philosophy as it was the results of my practice of meditation, you know, that, that there was a clarity that came and an ability to, to see and do things that, that just wasn't there before, you know, and, and people see these things, they think, oh, well, he was talented, but I wasn't talented, you know, I meditated, I, I, my consciousness began to expand, and then my abilities expanded with that. In terms of you know later things, I went. To, I became president some years later, many years later. I became president of a company called Newcomb Government Securities, which was a government securities dealer, needless to say. And uh, and that in that case, you know, basically that whole company was was TM Meditators, and that was an interesting experience in and of itself. So, uh, and 
in various ways, shapes, and forms. I, I haven't tried to, to intermingle these two things, but meditation and spirituality has always been a deep part of my life. And so as Janet and I then wrote the Passion Test and began teaching people how to discover your passions, that's directly related to consciousness and to your ability to, to be open to new possibilities. And so it's been natural for us to share not only the passion test, but also TM and how to, how to be able to connect with your passions in the most effective way. Wouldn't it be great if you think about all these, you know, kids leaving school, not knowing what they want to do, if the passion test yeah. was offered Requ to them. Re yeah. requi required reading, required yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. practice, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Rather than have, having them go through years and years of trying different things before they know what it is they want. And yeah. some of them never really get to know what it is. Unfortunately, that that's true. You know, yeah. most, of the, most of the clients of the passion test tend to be in their 40s, 50s, or 60s, you know. Yeah, it's so because they've been through by, the mill and yeah, found exactly. it didn't work. They spent 15, 20 years doing what they were told would make them happy, and they didn't end up happy. And so now they say there's got to be a better way, a different way. And so then they find us somehow. Yeah. And TM is another thing that should be taught in schools. But of course, in some places in the U.S., it's actually banned. I mean, yeah. meditation. Well, but in some is... places in the U.S., it is being taught now. The is David it... Lynch Foundation, you know, the oh, famous course, movie yeah. director, David yeah. Lynch, has, <clears throat> has uh, the David Lynch Foundation has provided funding so that some of the most... Um, challenge schools in San Francisco, Chicago, and I think they started in New York now, uh, schools which were, they had to have uh, metal detectors for the kids to go into school because there was so much violence and so forth. Uh, I remember hearing one story in San Francisco that the school that had the highest uh, suspension and um, it's not eviction. What is it when kids are kicked out of school? Expulsion. Uh, expulsion rate, yeah. The highest mm -hmm. expulsion rate of the whole San Francisco school district. Uh, they, they decided they were desperate. We'll try anything, you know? And so they, they didn't implement TM per se. What they did is they implemented something called quiet time. So they have 20 minutes or 30 minutes of quiet time in the morning and before the kids go home at night. And those who want to learn TM are offered TM without charge. And, and so most of the students and, and I think all or most of the faculty learned the TM practice. And three years later, four years later, something like that, it had gone from the highest expulsion rate in the district to the lowest expulsion rate, uh, stuff like that. I love stories like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I spoke to the, one of the, uh, I don't know, governors, Democratic, I don't know if he's a senator or what he is, but, um, uh, <laughs> Tim, Tim Ryan in Ohio, oh, yeah. and he oh, yeah. had championed that in schools, and they were finding that a lot of the kids, especially those with ADHD and learning difficulties, yeah. who reacted by not wanting to be at school, and they right. found that those rates of absenteeism changed dramatically. Yeah, no, no, mm. it's, it's, it's been great. I mean, the, with the, yeah. with the work that the David Lynch Foundation is doing is fantastic because people who would never otherwise have access to meditation yeah. are learning and, and including veterans with PTSD coming back mm -hmm. from Afghanistan and Iraq and so forth. And women in Africa who, who have been, you know, through these kind of genocidal experiences that uh, you can imagine the PTSD yeah. of these families in these places. And, um, I'm just so grateful that people in those situations have the opportunity to, 
to have a technique like TM, which is so life transforming. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Change it from within and everything changes without. That's right. So let's move on. Book number six by an unknown author, Deepak Chopra. Quantum healing, exploring the frontiers of mind-body medicine. He's got to be one of the most prolific authors that there is. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, so tell us how that book impacted you. Yeah, so there was a period in my life um, after I was president of the government securities company, I left and spent 10 years in long meditation. I was on this uh, special program that Marshi had created and there was a program for men, a program for women. And, and, uh, and during that time, I was living in upstate New York at an academy that we had there. And, and Deepak at this point was actively involved with Maharshi and the TM organization. And, and uh, he had written Quantum Healing uh, af with, after discussions with Maharshi and with the Ayurvedic, the Vijas from India that Marshi brought together because Marshi uh, went and he in each of the Vedic disciplines, uh, Ayurveda and Sapatyaved, Gandharva Ved, uh, Jyotish, these different Vedic disciplines, he brought the the representatives of the families throughout India who had been charged with maintaining those traditions. He brought them together and then systematically went through to, to piece them together to find where were the gaps, the places, the things that were missing and so forth. And so Deepak was part of that process uh, in the early days. And Quantum Healing was such a practical book because I mean, it's a little bit of philosophy but it's mostly about the practice of, of Ayurveda and how to identify your, your Prakriti, that means your, your, your body type and and what what kind of diet to eat, what's good for your particular body type and what's not. So it was so practical and I just loved it. it, it uh, excuse me, I remember going through the whole book and figuring out my body type and figuring out what sort of diet would be good for me and, and all of those things. It was my first real introduction to Ayurveda. And to Deepak? And to Deepak. I mean, because Deepak was working with Maharshi closely at that time, we saw a lot of videos of Deepak. And uh, a few times I met him in person. Later on, later, uh, I actually worked personally with Deepak. The, uh, Maharshi asked me and another colleague to go and meet with the wealthiest people in the United States and tell them that 7,000 yogic flyers can create world peace. Uh, and that's a whole story in of itself. There's a whole body of research that's been done showing that groups of people practicing TM and their advanced techniques can actually reduce crime, reduce war deaths, um, uh, reduce accident rates, uh, increase economic prosperity, all sorts of things like that. And, uh, and so what, during that project, Deepak at the time was managing the Maharshi Ayurveda uh, center in Lancaster, Massachusetts. And so when we would meet with someone and they were receptive, then we would introduce them to Deepak and suggest that they come to Lancaster to go through the Ayurvedic process called Panchakarma. And so they would meet Deepak and they would, uh, they would have some experience and so on. So we were finished at that point. So, but yeah, I had, I, I love Deepak, you know, I think Deepak is, he was and is a brilliant man who um, I just wish that his path and Maharshi's had stayed a little bit more aligned, but that's my, you know, my thing. 
So book number seven, we're going to have uh, some fun pron pronouncing this one. Lagu Yoga Vasista. The Lagu Yoga Vasista. Oh, gosh, Vashista. I love this book. I, I will tell you, this book is not for everybody. <laughs> it, it's, it's sort of not like your light reading that you're going to sit down on a Sunday night, you know, and and make it through. But it's a beautiful book. It's an amazing book. Yoga Vashista is, I think, actually 12 volumes, something like that. Lagu Yoga Vashista is one volume summarizing the teachings of the ancient sage Vashishta teaching Ram, Rama, who was, if you know anything about Indian uh, lore, the, the Ramayana is the story of Lord Rama and Sita, his wife, and how Sita was stolen away by Ravana, the, the demon Ravana, and Ram and all the adventures Rama and then Hanuman went through to recover Sita and to to destroy this negative influence in the world. And, and so when Ram was a young boy, he was taught by this uh, sage, this uh, seer by the name of Vashishta. And so Lagav Yoga Vashishta is the teachings of Vashishta to Ram. And it's a series of stories, you know, it's a series of fascinating stories. And at the time I read the book, uh, initially I was in New York, actually, in upstate New York, I mentioned this academy, and I read it a couple of times. And then I got moved up to Huntsville in Canada. This is up in the middle of the forest on a lake. It was gorgeous. The TM organization had a, an academy there as well. And, and I remember it was a hot, sunny day, okay, in, in summertime. And, and all my friends were out by the lake, and there was a little sandy beach, and they were lying out and enjoying themselves. And, and, I, and where was Chris? Chris was in his room in a bathtub filled with cold water, sitting in the bathtub reading Lagu Yoga Vashishta, you know, because I, it's just, I read it three times that I, I couldn't put it down. It was same kind of experience that I had when I was reading the science of being an art of living. It, it's, it hit me right at that perfect time when I needed that knowledge, when I needed that thing. And, and the biggest thing that I remember about it is that it broke boundaries in my mind of how the world works. Same sort of thing as the autobiography of a yogi, except in a different way. It, it was really profound teachings, uh, speaking on many different levels at the same time. And, uh, and it just broke things loose inside somehow. It says at the beginning, the introduction to, Lago, to Yoga Vashishta, actually, it, it says that uh, this book is not for those who are already enlightened, nor is it for those who have not yet begun uh, pursuing a spiritual path. It's for those who have come along the spiritual journey and who, who are ready to take that next leap to realization. So somehow it hit me right at that. Not, not that I was at the point of realization necessarily, but, the, but it hit me at the right time. It was such a beautiful, wonderful book of stories that, that had a profound impact. Mm. Well, on the theme of breaking loose and breaking boundaries, the next book, which is quite different, Busting Loose from the Money Game, Mind-Blowing yeah. Strategies for Changing the Rules of a Game You Can't Win by your friend Robert Scheinfeld. That's right. And, mm. uh, and that's cropped up a few times too. Has it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, so Robert is a dear friend. Uh, I think as I mentioned in my description, I've known him for quite a few years now. Uh, and when he wrote this book, he sent a copy to me and said, you know, I thought you might like to read it. And so I read it. And 
you know, here I am. I've been meditating for 20, 30 years by this time. I, uh, as I had read a lot of spiritual literature. But what I loved about this book is that Robert spoke about reality in terms that no one else I had ever heard of had used. Mm -hmm. uh, he described things that resonated with my own experience, but used a language that was completely novel and unusual. And as a result of that, like other books, it, it just allowed a, a sort of a, a, a deeper understanding or a deeper appreciation of my experience and, and uh, shifting certain concepts inside in ways that were really wonderful and dramatic. Now, if you ask Robert now, he'll say, well, busting loose from the money game was a good introduction, but what I teach now is completely different than that, and it is. But uh, he's sort of taken it to another level, which is great. But busting loose from the money game, it, it just hit me at the right time, primarily because of the, he, he invented new language for all sorts of things, which was really cool. And it yeah. made sense. Mm. Number nine, all love flows to the self. Eternal uh, stories from the Upanishads, Tom Eugenies. Tom Agnes, Agnes. Agnes. And, yeah. So many different ways to pronounce that name I came across. So, Agnes. Yeah, right. Okay. Tom Agnes. So, this book, uh, what, what Tom and his co authors have done, Tom is a Sanskrit scholar, and uh, they went through the Upanishads and pulled out the story portions. You know, the Upanishads have mm. both teaching portions and story portions. And so, they pulled out all the story portions uh, from the Upanishads and put them together in this book. And, and so uh, when I have been homeschooling my kids, uh, we're on the Bhagavad Gita now, so it's been a few years since we've done the Upanishads, but, uh, but I pulled out this book and, and used it to, as a basis for homeschooling my kids that, to introduce them to some of the, the concepts of consciousness, but in a story format, you know, in a way that would be fun and interesting for them to read it. And really that's why I put this book on the list is because it's a great way to have an introduction to the Upanishads, light, easy reading, fun, uh, but it still has very profound concepts that the Upanishads of course have been quoted and referred to by some of the greatest thinkers of all time because they, mm -hmm. they have such profound wisdom within them. Number 10, um, the title itself, I mean, you know, this is, this is about coming home. This is the perfect way to end your list, a mind at home with itself. It's uh, what we all aspire to. That's right. How asking four questions can free your mind, open your heart and turn your world around. Of course, yes. it's by Ron Katie. That's right. Mm. Well, I had the good fortune uh, around the year 2000 to be able to work with Katie, to support her work and to live with her actually. Um, she had three or four of us who lived in the house that she, uh, she owned in Manhattan Beach. And, uh, and so I was very close to Katie. And, and again, it was one of those things, you, you know, you go through your life. I don't know if this is your experience, Sandy, but it's been my experience for sure is that I've gone through my life and I'm just going along living my life. And then like the perfect thing comes for some somewhere out of the blue, who knows? And Byron Katie, Janet, my ex-wife and business partner and, and co-author of The Passion Test, 
was asked by Byron Katie to be her marketing director. And Janet called me up. I was at the time, I had gone back for another year of long meditation after being away for 10 years. And she called me up and said, you know, this woman, Byron Katie, has asked me to be her marketing director. I need you to meet her and tell me if I should do this or not. She didn't really mean that. But what she meant is I want to get your feedback, your input, mm -hmm. you know. And so Janet flew me to, uh, where was it, Washington, D.C., where Katie was doing a workshop. And I remember sitting with her. And it was just profound, you know, the, the simple process she calls the work, four questions and a turnaround. The, yeah. Uh, you know, is it true? Can you absolutely know that it's true? How, how do you react or how do you feel when you have that thought? Who would you be without that thought? And then what she calls the turnaround. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's powerful stuff. And, and so when I went back, it was time for me to go to leave this meditation uh, period. And I called Katie because Janet and I had talked with her a lot during in both Washington, D.C. and Boston. So she knew me by now. And I called Katie and said, Katie, I'd like to come and help you if you're open to it. And would there be any place for me to live? And she said, yes, honey, please come and you can um, you can stay in the pit. <laughs> uh, OK, I'm not sure if that sounds exactly welcoming, but uh, so it turned out that Katie had this house in Manhattan Beach, California, and on the ground floor was an office. On the second floor were three bedrooms, which Katie was in one, and there were two uh, young women who were helping her who were uh, on, on that same floor. And then on the top floor was the living room, the dining room, and the kitchen. So you had this gorgeous view of the ocean, right? Up over the, the, the roofs of the other houses. And the living room was like this, and then there was a step down, and, and then there was a fireplace over here. And she, they called that the pit because it went down a step. And so for a year, every, every day I would un, undo my piece of foam, put it on the floor, roll out my bedroll and sleep there. And then in the morning I'd roll it all up and put it in the closet, right? And, and that was my life. But it was, it was really a special, special time because as profound as meditation has been and is in my life, if there was only one thing I had to keep, I could keep, uh, if of all the things I'd learned, I'd keep my meditation practice. But the number two thing is Katie's work. And that's because there were still beliefs and concepts that sometimes made me feel uncomfortable and or suffer even. And, uh, and by doing the work, I found that it was possible to undo, unravel those concepts. And then it started, as Katie says, living inside of me, that a thought would come and I would say, is that true? Can I really know that that's true? I remember uh, at the time I was first introduced to Katie, I went back to uh, North Carolina where this large meditation group was and I came out of the meditation hall and I thought, I think I'll go to lunch. And then I remember immediately came up, I, hmm, is that true? Can I really know that there's an I? Can I absolutely know that there's an I? Um, and how do I react when I have a thought that there's an I? Well, I think that there's me, that I'm in this body, that I have to eat, you know, these sort of things. And who would I be without that thought? Well, I would just be here, present, you know, walking to the dining hall or not or whatever. And then, I, and then it, it, this, it all happened kind of spontaneously, Sandy. It, it, un, it unraveled on the, the whole sentence. I think, can I really know that it's me that's thinking and blah, 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 you know, and uh, like it was so much fun. The um, so this book, 
This book is on another level though. This is not an introductory book. Um, the introductory book that Katie wrote is called Loving What Is. And for anyone who's not familiar with Katie's work, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's extremely powerful. But for people who've been on a spiritual path for some time, this book takes the Diamond Sutra of the Buddha and, and analyzes its meaning from Katie's perspective. And it's, it's really about the non-existence of existence and, and, and how, how it can be possible that we that there can be a self and yet there's no self at the same time. I mean, it, it, it's way out there for anyone who's not familiar with these kind of concepts. Mm. But but if you have been, as I have been and and was, I, this one was just released a few years ago, and I remember reading it and go, whoa, this is amazing because it resonated so much with my own internal experience. By this time, you know, it's yeah. just yeah. that being one of the things that I have learned, Sandy, about about spiritual growth is that the measure of evolution, at least in my life and world, has been my ability to uh, live, to accept, not only accept, but to welcome uncertainty, to be able to live in a place of not knowing and being okay with that, you know? And uh, so, Katie, uh, there's a lot of that in that particular book. So I'm going to have to go in a minute, but I'd like to. I know to... you are. I know you are. And you've got one more book you want to share with everybody. I would like to share that book yeah. because this one just came out on April 1st. And, and I think it's amazing. And I, anybody who's listening to this interview, I hope that you'll get it. Right now, it's only available in English as an ebook. If you speak Spanish, it's available in Spanish as a print book, but only as an ebook. It's available on Amazon, Kindle, Nook, all those places. It's called One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness. It's written by Dr. Tony Nader. Dr. Tony Nader is a medical doctor who was trained at Harvard Medical School, who has a PhD in neuroscience from MIT, and who was chosen in 2008 by Maharshi Mahesh Yogi to be Maharshi's successor uh, when Maharshi passed away that year in leading the TM organizations worldwide. So, you know, TM operates in more than 150 countries. There's more than 10 million people who have learned to meditate. There are some 40,000 teachers. There's universities in the US and Europe and elsewhere. Dr. Nader oversees all of that. And what's amazing about this book is here you have a man who in my experience has uh, both a big, beautiful heart, but he has also this huge intellect. And, and as I mentioned to you, Sandy, he when his book was coming out, he asked Janet and I if we would advise him, consult with him, help him, support him with the release of his book. Because he said, I know a lot about consciousness, but I don't know much about book launches, you know, how you, how you get a book out. And this book uh, is the premise, the fundamental premise of the book is that consciousness is all there is. There is nothing but consciousness. And what Dr. Nader does in a very systematic and clear way is both from a scientific perspective and from a logical perspective, explains why we have to conclude. If we go through and think logically about the structure of life and creation, we have to conclude that consciousness is primary and matter is secondary, that matter emerges from consciousness, not the other way around. And of course, this is a big debate that's gone on in psychology and, and in scientific circles for many, many years. But I think he gives the clearest case ever made, in my opinion, for why it, it has to be the case that consciousness is the prime mover of life. 
and 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 then he describes how consciousness how matter emerges from consciousness and why that happens and so the book is not for the faint of heart uh, i mean it's it's definitely not written for a third year or a third grader you know but it is um but it's very understandable at the same time you know i mean you don't have to be a, a genius to read and understand this book you you have to be open and willing to go through and think about the concepts i think for me it's the kind of book i'll read two three four times because his logic is so beautiful and and the step-by-step -step way in which he describes how consciousness comes to become aware of itself and then being aware of itself it then begins to it creates a three-in-one structure within its unified awareness of being consciousness it's conscious it becomes conscious of itself then because by being conscious there has to be an observer something that is observed and a process of observation. So by becoming conscious of itself, consciousness creates this three. And then he describes how those three each have their own perspectives and how they then emerge into the world and creation that we see. And it's just, it's for someone who's interested in this stuff, it's fascinating. It's absolutely has to be a must read book on anyone's list if you like this kind of stuff. This is the book that we give to all our relatives who say you're crazy for believing all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. So, wow, Chris, thank you so much. I know you have to go um, very quickly before you go. What are you reading now? If it's not this book. What am I reading now? Well, this, I am reading this book right now. Okay. So that's the predominant thing. And without going too much into it, I, I kind of always have, I have, I don't know if always is true, but I have two tracks going on right now. I have one track, which is uh, kind of spiritual uh, knowledge, literature of one sort or another. And the other track is just pure fun. So I, I have my fantasy fiction uh, books that I read that are just pure stories, pure entertainment. I love them. And and uh famous and they, fantasy they, author no favorite no famous, favorite. Favorite? favorite well i mean this is not going to sound very um original at all Doesn't but need uh, to. but uh i read all the harry potter books uh my excuse was that uh that my i wanted to use them to, to help my kids enjoy reading better so i had to read them of course and I love them and my kids love them. And mm. JK Rowling is just a brilliant author. And, mm. and I think um, anyone who loves magic and miracles and, and fantasy things, it's, it's a great series, fantastic series. Chris so. mm. Atwood, I'm gonna let you go now and I will do the outro without you because I know you've got another appointment. Thank you for being so generous with your time and giving us your 11 best spiritual <laughs> yeah, books that's right sandy thank you so much and as i told you before we started i'm so grateful to you for creating this series because i think it's such fun to talk with people about the books that have impacted their lives and how they've impacted their lives it's just brilliant and i hope that many more people get to uh, participate and appreciate and 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 learn from from your guests and the the things that have helped them on their journey so Me thank too. you so much sandy thank appreciate you chris bye-bye give my love Bye. to janet I will. Okay, bye-bye. And that's it for today. Thank you to everybody at home for joining us. If you want to be the first to be notified of these events or watch the videos, you can join the No BS Spiritual Book Club 
private Facebook group, or you can visit the video page at the No BS Spiritual Book.com, where you can also download MP3 recordings if you like to listen to these in your car while driving on your phone or your whatever device you've got. Um, that's it. I'll look forward to seeing you at the same time next week. Till then, it's goodbye from me. Mm -hmm.